Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from London, I'm Isa Suarez in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. China tensions, the U.S., U.K., and Australia agree a nuclear-powered submarine deal as Beijing protests. Drawing a red line, Japan's defense minister pushes back in its island's dispute with China and the X Factor. Four civilian astronauts prepare for their first full day in orbit. It is Thursday, so let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you here with us this Thursday as the United States releases an encouraging new read on the economy. Let me bring you those numbers. The latest numbers show retail sales rising seven-tenths of a percent in August. You can see that endless were expecting a drop in sales for a second straight month, excluding auto August retail, autos August retail sales. They rose almost 2%. And if we have a look at futures, well, they are bouncing off session lows after the release of that data, as you can imagine. But we are still on track for a mostly lower open with tech stocks looking the weakest. That's the futures there. Of course, we've got uh, 30 minutes or so, just under 30 minutes uh, for the bell to open. This follows what has been the best day, as you can see there on Wall Street in weeks. The S&P and the Nasdaq rose almost 1% on Wednesday. All the major averages, however, are still down for September so far. If I show you the markets here in Europe, it is pretty post, mostly uh, a positive day. A FTSE up almost half percent. Same, Cetrodax doing a bit better. Paris still clearly leading the way. Chinese stocks, though, as you can see on your screen, falling more than 1% amid continued nervousness about the property developer Evergrande. We'll get to that in a minute. Ratings firm Fitch says some kind of default is probable. Hong Kong's Hang Seng suffered its fourth straight drop, as you can see there, of more than 1%, almost 1.5%, in fact. Meantime, Hong Kong's listed casino stocks, which we have been monitoring here now on CNN, closed lower again on fears of an imminent gambling crackdown in Macau. Casino firms with Macau-based properties have lost some $18 billion in market value this week. As you can see there, Sands China almost down almost 8%, Win Macau uh, 4.5% and MGM China just over 2%. So let's get straight to today's drivers. China blasting a move by the US and the UK to help Australia acquire nuclear-powered submarines over the next 18 months. The deal is also upsetting one of America's top allies in Europe, as well as sparking tensions between Australia and New Zealand. President Biden said the deal is in response to a changing world. Take a listen. This is about investing in our greatest source of strength, our alliances, and updating them to better meet the threats of today and tomorrow. It's about connecting America's existing allies and partners in new ways and amplifying our ability to collaborate, recognizing there is no regional divide separating the interests 
of our Atlantic and Pacific partners. Let's get more on this. John Hardwood joins me now. And John, what was interesting that in the press conference that we saw, China was never mentioned directly by the three leaders, but the pact, of course, is being seen as an effort to counter China's military might, correct? There's no question about it. Uh, And this is something that Joe Biden has been involved with for a long time. When he was Barack Obama's vice president, uh, uh, the discussion in foreign policy was the strategic pivot to Asia. Uh, That partially involved uh, economic relations, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was negotiated that the U.S. uh, under Donald Trump uh, pulled out of that uh, deal. But here is a strategic uh, national security alliance between the United States the UK and Australia uh, to uh, provide, to enhance the presence of the United States and its allies militarily uh, as a deterrent against China as China China looks for regional dominance. And it's particularly useful for President Biden to underscore those alliances in the aftermath of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which sparked a lot of criticism. Uh, A lot of questions were uh, directed at the United States in terms of its uh, reliance as uh, as an ally, reliability as an ally. And now Joe Biden was able to uh, uh, announce this today with those two prime ministers, uh, even at the cost of uh, annoying uh, New Zealand and France, as you mentioned at the top. Indeed, yeah. Uh, So what has been the reaction, John, to this security pact in the U.S.? And are are there any concerns that you're hearing of of an arms race with China? I don't think so. Uh, It hasn't been a lot of, of course, public reaction because it's so new. And the uh, the American public doesn't closely follow uh, uh, events of this kind uh, on a day-to-day basis. But as a political matter, both Republicans and Democrats uh, have come together in recent years over the need to stand up to China. Uh, The ways in which you do that has sparked conflict between the two parties. Uh, But I don't think Joe Biden's going to get much pushback, even from Republicans, on the idea of making common cause with the U.K. and Australia to bolster the uh, national security profile of U.S. allies in that region. John Hardwood there for us in Washington, D.C. Thanks very much, John. Well, China says the new security pact is evidence of an outdated Cold War mentality, their words. It is accusing the allies of a zero-sum approach to geopolitics and says their pact will destabilize the region. Let's get more on this side of the story. Stephen Zhang joins me now. And, and, and Stephen, as you heard John saying there, this is about countering China's dominance in the region. So what has been the reaction from China? Well, you said the reaction has been swift and not surprising. A foreign ministry official, as you mentioned, said it, uh, on Thursday that this pact really undermines, severely undermines regional peace and stability and also the international nuclear uh, non-proliferation efforts, not to mention uh, intensifying a regional arms race. But, you know, these accusations actually pale in, in comparison to what we have seen in uh, uh, some editorials in uh, state-run media. The Global Times, for example, in a scathing editorial published on Thursday, basically warn Australia of deadly consequences if it ever gets into a a military conflict with China. And, uh, you know, this newspaper calling Australia a running dog of the U.S., incidentally, not the first time they have used that term, uh, saying that Australian troops are likely to become the first Western casualties in the South China Sea uh, if the Australian government continues down this path of its current policies against China. It went on to say that uh, Australian military installations, for example, are certainly 
certainly going to be targeted by Chinese missiles if Australian troops uh, fight the uh, People's Liberation Army in any part of the region. So this is very belligerent language and very explicit warnings. Uh, But uh, in a way, proving why Australian feels it needs these uh, uh, submarines in the first place. But the other thing uh, worth noting, of course, is uh, during the press conference announcing this deal, all the leaders stressed these submarines are nuclear powered, not nuclear armed. But that Mm -hmm. distinction seems to uh, make little difference in the eyes of the Beijing leadership with, again, state media saying by nature, these subs are designed to be strategic striking tools and they will Mm -hmm. pose a threat to the PLA because they can travel further in deeper waters. So the arms race concern, I think, is very real in the minds of many experts, especially Mm -hmm. in this region. And you mentioned and you mentioned, Stephen, really the strong word, you know, words against Australia. But the reality is that both the relations hadn't been great between Australia and China. Uh, The country had been locked in a trade war with China for more than a year. I'm guessing this relationship has just worsened. That's right. But in a way, this relationship simply cannot get any worse. As you mentioned, you know, you know, China being Australia's biggest partner, but have been freezing out Australian exports mm-hmm. for more than a year, you know, range on things from beef, barley, wine to coal. And I think there, this has caused bilateral trade to, uh, uh, to reduce by $4 billion. But, you know, this deal, if uh, the bigger issue here is actually uh, is reinforcing the notion in the mind of the Chinese leadership that the U.S. and its close allies are out to get China. They are encircling China, containing China, not only politically, diplomatically, but now increasingly militarily. And that is something they have to deal with. And that, of course, is not going to be conducive to improving uh, relationships between Beijing and Canberra, but probably more important relationship between Beijing and Washington, despite that phone call last week between Xi Jinping and Biden with both uh, with both leaders pledging to avoid direct conflict. Isa. Yeah, very important context there from our Stephen Jang. Thanks very much, Stephen. Good to see you. Well, meanwhile, Japan supporting the new partnership between the US, UK and Australia, saying it's crucial for peace and security in the region. This, as Japan's defense minister says, China, not North Korea, is the biggest security concern for his country in an exclusive interview with CNN's Blake Essig. For years, North Korean missiles have posed a serious threat to Japan's national security. That threat hasn't gone away. Recently, North Korea has test-fired several missiles, including long-range cruise missiles capable of striking almost any potential target in Japan. And even more concerning, ballistic missiles that on Wednesday fell into the waters between Japan and the Korean Peninsula. Well, Japan's defense minister, Nobuo Kishi, says the ongoing hostility from North Korea is a big challenge. He says it isn't Japan's biggest security concern. As Japan's minister of defense, what threat keeps you up at night? China has been regularly challenging Japan's territorial integrity. These actions are making it a fait accompli. In response to such moves, we have to demonstrate our will to protect the lives of Japanese citizens, as well as their livelihoods and our territory. The inherent part of Japanese territory Minister Kishi is referring to is located here in the East China Sea, about 1,900 kilometers from Tokyo. It's this uninhabited island chain known as the Senkakus in Japan and Diaoyu in China that's seemingly a red line for Kishi and one that could serve as Asia's next military flashpoint. What is Japan doing to contain China and stop them from changing the so-called status quo in the East and South China Seas, specifically in the waters uh, surrounding the Senkaku Islands? 
The Senkaku Islands are an integral part of Japanese sovereign territory, both according to international law and looking historically. There is no territorial dispute relating to the Senkaku Islands between Japan and other countries. With regards to the Chinese Coast Guard vessels approaching our territory, Japanese Coast Guards must respond first and show that the government of Japan is determined to defend our territory with a greater number of Japanese Coast Guard vessels than that of China. And according to Minister Kishi, that's exactly what Japan is doing in an effort to maintain peace and stability in the region. To put that into perspective, over the past five years compared to the previous five, a report by Stockholm International Peace Research Institute shows Japan has increased its major arms imports by 124%. And Kishi recently laid out plans to deploy troops and missiles on Ishigaki, as well as other southern islands, as tensions grow between Beijing and Taipei along the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan is located at the nexus of the East and South China Seas, and it is geopolitically and strategically important. That's why Taiwan's peace and stability is not just important for this region, but to the international community as a whole. With regard to Japan's energy lifeline, more than 90% of the energy Japan uses is imported through the sea around Taiwan. So it's important to maintain the maritime order and a free and open Indo-Pacific. How committed is Japan to the defense of Taiwan versus China? Japan is not directly committed to the defense of Taiwan. However, we think it is very important to have stability on the Taiwan Strait. You said that Japan is not directly committed to defending Taiwan. What is the difference between directly and indirectly? Because we are close geographically, what could happen in Taiwan would likely be an issue for Japan, in which case Japan would need to respond accordingly. A military situation, Kishi admits, has been shifting in favor of Beijing in recent years, one that he plans to keep a close eye on, while still hopeful for a peaceful resolution. Blake Essig, CNN, Tokyo. Let me bring up today weather stories making headlines around the world this hour. France says its forces have killed the leader of a group affiliated to ISIS in Western Africa. Officials say Adwan Abu Walid al-Sawrawi died last month following an airstrike in Mali. France has blamed him for the deaths of civilians and members of security forces, including four U.S. soldiers, in 2017. The Taliban's acting deputy prime minister in Afghanistan is denying rumours of a political infighting. Mullah Abdul Ghani Barada appeared on camera Wednesday saying he is fit and well after reports that he was injured in a dispute at the presidential palace. He says there are no internal rifts between the Taliban factions and the Akani network. Former U.S. gymnast Jessica Howard is demanding follow-through after Wednesday's Senate hearing on how the FBI mishandled the Larry Nasser case. In the hearing, top gymnasts described how the FBI failed to take the allegations of abuse seriously and did nothing to stop Nasser having access to athletes. The Justice Department did not appear at the hearing. Still to come right here on First Move Space Tourist, we've got the head of NASA talking about life on board SpaceX civilian mission and charging ahead. E-scooter startup Gogora is going public. The CEO joins me to explain how battery swaps mean big bucks. Both those stories after a short break.
Welcome back to First Move. We've got about 22 minutes or so until the opening bell rings. And let's have a look at futures continue to point to really, uh, really a mostly lower open for US stocks. Dow futures pretty flat. The NASDAQ and the S&P are set to pull back a bit despite surprisingly strong update on retail sales that we brought you at the top of the show. Sales rose more than half a percent in August versus expectations for a second straight monthly drop. The numbers show the continued resilience, of course, of the U.S. consumer, even as the Delta variant continues to pressure economic reopenings in states and their enhanced jobless benefits programs. Jobless claims also in focus today. An additional 332,000 Americans filed for new benefits last week, and that is a rise from previous pandemics low. Now, ratings agency Fitch downgraded uh, Chinese property giant Evergrande as the risk of default continues to grow. Now, according to Fitch, a default could have broader impacts on numerous sectors in China. Christy Lu Stout has the details on Evergrande's debt crisis. It's the Chinese giant that lives up to its name. Evergrande is one of the biggest real estate groups in China. Owner of a football team, it's also built a football academy thought to be the biggest of its kind. It's also building the world's biggest football stadium, a massive lotus flower that will seat 100,000. And its latest claim to fame? The Hong Kong-listed Evergrande has become China's most indebted developer with liabilities worth more than $300 billion. And the cash-strapped property firm is struggling to pay it back. Sending its stock price plummeting prompting ratings agencies to downgrade its status and warning it could default, which would send shockwaves through China's economy. So how did Evergrande get into this mess? It's built as many as 600,000 homes annually and is a massive debt load 56 times bigger now than it was a decade ago. It's also strayed far from its core business. It's founded a colossal football academy, a bottled water brand, which had then later sold an electric car company. Disgruntled and desperate investors have protested at company headquarters in Shenzhen. They've cheated me out of all my money. I have nothing left, says one unidentified investor. The real estate giant said online speculation about its bankruptcy are, quote, completely untrue, adding the company has indeed encountered unprecedented difficulties at present, but the company is determined to do everything possible to restore the operation as usual and protect the legitimate rights and interests of customers. That has done little to pacify angry investors in Shenzhen. And elsewhere in China, videos circulating on social media show what is described as an Evergrande protest in Hainan, in Nanchang, and in Chengdu. CNN could not verify the footage. In August, China's central bank summoned Evergrande execs and warned the company to reduce its debt. Analysts say it's likely Beijing would intervene. Will the Chinese government step in to save it? Here at the EIU, we do ultimately expect that the government will intervene in Evergrande's case, as it will not allow the company's defaults to spread into the banking system. The problem is if, if large numbers of those buyers of properties don't receive their properties, then that's going to cause contagion into other property developers. People are going to lose confidence. There's just too much at stake. China's economy is sputtering because of its aggressive response to the Delta variant and supply chain issues. Chinese markets have plunged as regulators target tech, education and other private enterprises. A major default is the last thing China needs. So Evergrande, living up to its name, has become too big to fail. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. 
Let's get more on this story. It's a story we've been monitoring for all week here on CNN. Patrick Chovanek joins me now. He's an economic advisor for Silvercrest Asset Management. Patrick, great to have you on the show. I'm not sure whether you could hear that, hear that report we just had there from Chrissy Lustau. But could. look, it's clear that Evergrande is really in a precarious situation. What's your assessment of what really is unfolding here? So there are two things you have to understand about the situation. The first is that this is not a new saga. If you had asked me 10 years ago, what was the riskiest uh, real estate developer in China in a very risky sector, I would have said Evergrande. And they've run into financial difficulties before, and they've always been quietly bailed out because of the consequences of a default. Um, the second important thing to understand here is that Evergrande is not unique. Um, they have gotten themselves into, they've been notorious for um, pre-selling uh, apartments, relying on uh, the income from that as opposed to actually delivering them, um, and really building an empire based on debt. But there are a lot of empires based on debt throughout China, and particularly in the property sector. And that's why there's this fear of contagion, because Evergrande is not at all unique. It's just a poster child for a deep endemic problem in China's economy. And we'll go into that in just a moment. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just what you were saying. I mean, you're basically saying that the writing was pretty much on the wall for Evergrande for some time. I mean, that analyst said they strayed away from its core business. Is, is, that, where it's, is that where it's gone wrong, would you think? No, uh, the core business is the problem. Uh, the fact that they have relied on debt to build this real estate empire um, that uh, generated relatively little income compared mm. to the amount of debt that was taken out. And like I say, that is a problem that is not unique to Evergrande at all, and that China has been trying to paper over for many years now. And that's really where the question is not, you know, is there a loss? The question is, who bears that loss? And, and that leads me nicely into really my next question. Do you think the Chinese government will have to step in here? Well, you know, the Chinese government doesn't want to because it realizes that every time it does, that it only makes the problem worse. But it's hard to stop. And especially when you see not just the concern about the financial impact on banks mm. or foreign investors, which they probably don't really care about at this point, but the social unrest in China. Um, not only do you have domestic people owning shares in Evergrande, but you have over a million people who have paid for apartments that they are probably not going to receive unless somehow this is resolved. And those people don't have a lot of money. It may be all the money that they saved up for many years. And you can see you know, how they feel about that. So that's one of the main concerns that the Chinese government has, not just the financial ripple effects that this could have, which are very real, but the social ripple effects. Yeah, so perhaps if they see that getting out of the hand, they may perhaps get in. But like you clearly said, Patrick, you know, it, it is one of the world's most indebted companies, but it's not the only indebted Chinese property company. So when it comes to the financial system, banking system, what's at risk here for China's banking system if it then you know, if Evergrande goes the way that many expect it to go? Well, nobody really knows, you know, what happens if you pull one of these loose threads, and there are many in China's economy. And they've been reluctant to do that in the past. Uh, I have a feeling that they'll be reluctant to do it again uh, now, and that there'll be some kind of quietly brushing this under the rug and, and shifting the, the losses around. But the problem here is that that just contributes to this ongoing bad debt issue 
which quietly erodes the foundation of growth in China. It diverts resources from where they really need to be reallocated. Um, it places an ongoing burden on the system and it slows growth. So people ask you, why is China's growth slowing? There are many reasons, demographics and things like that. But but this overhang of bad debt that's continuing continuously being papered over doesn't lead to a crisis, doesn't lead to a meltdown, but leads to an erosion of China's economic momentum at a time when they really need to be uh, keeping that momentum up. And so what about, you know, Evergrande's operations outside mainland China? Well, you know, they've they've dabbled outside of mainland yeah. China, just like they've dabbled in soccer and other things. I mean, the, the big issue internationally for uh, for Evergrande is the fact that they took out U.S. dollar debt mm -hmm. and that there are foreign investors involved here. But really, the bulk of of um, of Evergrande's business has always been mainland China and the property market. And that's where the bulk of the problems are. OK, uh, give me your uh, final final perspective on this. How long do you think that Evergrande can withstand these pressures? So don't expect a Lehman style blow up. I mean, it's possible that they lose control of the situation and that's happened, but that but that's unlikely. Um, but don't be persuaded that just because it's gone from the headlines that the problem is resolved, because we've seen it appear and disappear from the headlines over many years. And the problem continues to persist and fester. Yeah, well, stay on top of the stories, the story, Patrick, that we've been on top of this week. And we've seen how angry and disgruntled those investors are. We'll keep on top of the story, of course. Patrick Chovanek, Economic Advisor for Silvercrest Assets Management. And thanks very much, Patrick. Great to have you on the show. Well, I'll have the market open next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this first. Let's have a look at the main averages and they are really struggling a bit in early trading, trying to find some direction, despite, of course, a stronger than expected read on U.S. retail sales. Dow Jones up just really pretty flat, I'm going to say. Nasdaq down three-tenths of a percent. Similar picture with the S&P 500, uh, 500. Now, investors also have been following the progress of that massive $3.5 trillion fiscal stimulus bill in the U.S. Congress. We'll bring you that story a bit later in the show. The House yesterday, if you remember, proving the tax hikes that would help pay for the programs if passed. We'll have more on the landmark legislation and the growing tax the rich battle cry in D.C. later on this hour to stay with us for that. Now to a Taiwanese startup planning an electric debut on the Nasdaq. E-scooter company Gogoro announcing just this morning that will go public in a, in a, spa, in a space deal with, which values it at $2.3 billion. Much of its value lies in its battery subscription service, which you're seeing on your screen. And this really allows customers to buy the scooters but rent the electric batteries, which are the most expensive element. Joining me is Horace Luke. He's the chairman and CEO of Gogoro. Horace, great to have you on the show. Congratulations, first of all. Let's start with this merger with Poema and your listing on the NASDAQ. Tell, tell our viewers what this means uh, for your business going forward. Thank you, Isa, for having me on the show. Um, it's a really exciting time for electric mobility. You know, we started our company about 10 years ago with a single focus to make cities cleaner and better for the future by changing how people use energy. And you know, through the last 10 years, we've been able to develop technology that really did that. And as you said, in the heart of what we do every day is this advanced battery swapping infrastructure that lets electric mobility happen within these big cities. 
And we just recently announced big partnerships in China, big partnerships in India. You know, we're ready to go big. And, and, and by going on to the NASDAQ and listing our company publicly, we get to, you know, get access to the capital and then also at the same time provide the transparency and the credibility that we're, you know, our partners are looking for and the market is looking for. And like you said, Horace, you know, this, of course, you know, will really give you fresh funds, let's say, uh, as you look to expand. You mentioned India, you mentioned China, the most, two most popular stations in the world. Where else have you got your eyes set on? Well, you know, and the China itself, you know, there's about, you know, China and India themselves, there's about half a billion vehicles moving around, uh, you know, on the ground today. Um, you know, if people don't know in the West, over 50% of all individual commute miles done every day is on two-wheelers. You know, the, the, alone, 63 million vehicles are sold annually across these two countries. That represents about 80% of the volume of the regular four-wheel vehicle. The market is gigantic, especially if you, you know, consider the energy, as you said, of renting the battery and renting it as a, as a mean of a fuel that is cleaner than paying for those instead of paying for gasoline. Now, of course, you know, the Periscope is up for many other, other nations. There are many places with, with two-wheelers as a main mode of transportation. But our real focus right now is really just, in, you know, executing in China in a big way. We're launching in, in Q4 in Hangzhou and Wuxi quickly after that and five to six cities immediately after that in, in early part of next year. And then later part of uh, 2022, we're launching in New Delhi with our partner Hero Motor Corp., uh, you know, helping them transform their portfolio from the traditional ICE vehicle to now, you know, the cleaner, better, you know, electric transportation, mm. electric and, vehicles. And if we have, you know, if our viewers watching, be it in India or in China, if they want to do this, give us a sense of cost in terms of renting these battery towers. Well, the amazing thing is what we did was we removed the most expensive part, as you said, from the equation from the purchase. So, you know, instead of buying a very expensive electric vehicle, you no longer buy the battery, which makes up about 30 to 40% of the overall cost of material when you build the vehicle. That in turn, we can provide the vehicle at the same cost, if not even cheaper than a traditional gasoline vehicle. And because you pay just as much as you use the battery, you pay over time. And the equivalent of that against gasoline is about the same. You know, maybe slightly higher if you, if you use less of the battery. But if you use a lot, you know, it ends up being more economical. And in a nation like India and China, people depend on these two-wheel vehicles in a big way to not only get themselves, you know, around town, but, you know, just essential part of their everyday living within these big cities. We see the cost of ownership over a couple of years of owning the vehicle to be about a wash, you know, from, 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 from what they are used to in the beginning using ICE vehicle to now the electric vehicle. And I know you're, you're starting, uh, you already have deals with big scooter brands, like you said, Horace, in China uh, uh, and India. But give me a sense of, of uh, the growth of the subscribers, of how well it's been received. Well, in Taiwan, you know, I'll give you an example of what we did in Taiwan. We launched our, our idea in 2015 in Taiwan. Before we launched, you know, the, the electric two-wheeler in Taiwan did not even make up 1% of the market share. What's amazing is that since we launched, now it makes up about 10% of the overall market share when you count in all the gasoline vehicle. Now, you know, in comparison, Tesla is about 3.5% of the U.S. automotive you know, market. So we've done a really good job building up the electric two-wheeler you know, to be now popular. Now, what's amazing within that is us and our partner, we count you know, Yamaha and Suzuki, 
uh, Taiwan, along with a number of other vehicles makers, as part of our partnership to build these vehicles that uses the same infrastructure. And because of the ease and the funness of using the battery swapping system, we're able to capture amongst that, you know, that growth of a thousand percent in market share. We now have 97 percent of that of the overall EV market in Taiwan. Now, in China, China is, you know, it's 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 the center of, of, of electric vehicle today. But they're using these very environmentally damaging lead acid batteries, you know, through a new regulation that's been in, in place in since 2019. There's about 290 million vehicles that over the next five years has to convert to the more efficient, cleaner lithium ion battery. But because of the energy density of the lithium ion battery, it really requires a different way of charging these batteries. And that's why you're seeing, you know, the, the, the popularity of, you know, at least the talk of, you know, the people talking about battery swapping within China. The, let the, me ask the, you about, but let me ask you about battery now that you've mentioned it, Horace. But now that you might, I mean, where are you? What else do you think your batteries can be used for here? What's, you know, no. give us a sense of ideas. What, what are you seeing in terms of possibilities here? Well, I keep telling everybody in my, in my company, you know, with, with people I talk with, you know, energy is the center of all human innovation. You know, just the fact that I'm talking to you today has to do with power. And all we do is, you know, put that power into a very portable, you know, smart and connected way. Now, mobility, of course, is, you know, the largest consumption of energy that you use every day. You know, we can use these portable power to do things that are, you know, very, very different than just mobility itself. We've got projects that are going on that has wheels, that has more than two wheels, as well as things that actually don't have wheels. Uh, batteries can power many, many things, especially when it's portable. So, you know, there's a lot of, of, of skunk work projects within our, our company that we're working on that takes these batteries to the next level to really use them for different, different, different applications that you think mm. about, you know, the world changing to cleaner energy. Well, we shall keep an eye on your business. We wish you, obviously, all the best of luck. Congratulations on your debut on the, NAS, on the NASDAQ. Horace Luke, the chairman and the CEO of Gagoro. Thanks very much. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Lisa. And then after the break, check out The View. SpaceX celebrates the launch of four space stories into orbit. Without the help of astronauts, we have the NASA administrator next. There they go. For the next three days, the world's first all-civilian space crew will be orbiting the Earth. Imagine that. Well, there's no, let me, any, no professional astronaut on board. The four-person crew is led by billionaire Jared Isaacman, who funded the Inspiration4 mission. SpaceX hopes this will be the first of many tourist missions, taking space travel into a whole new era. CNN Space correspondent Rachel Crane joins me now from Cape Canaveral. And Rachel, I mean, the launch, as we see, was very successful. What are you hearing in terms of what they have been doing? How are they feeling? Well, Isa, you know, what's interesting here is that this is a, a private mission. This is not a NASA-sponsored mission. So as a result, we don't actually have quite as much transparency into what they are doing on board uh, Resilience, which is the, what their, their Crew Dragon is named. So normally we'd be getting a lot more information about what they're doing currently in the spacecraft. But right now, uh, we haven't gotten an update for several hours now. So we do know we saw uh, images of them in the capsule as they were making their ascent. 
they were smiling. We got a few thumbs up from Dr. Proctor. Uh, what we saw once they hit their uh, hit zero G, their zero G indicator was a, a little dog. That was in honor of the St. Jude uh, dogs that are um, uh, in the hospital helping the children. Um, and actually you can purchase those at St. Jude and online. Uh, so there's always a lot of interest into what that zero G indicator is going to be on these uh, crude flights. And of course that was a, a special nod to St. Jude. And this is a, a mission where all of the proceeds are going. And, uh, it's um, for charity. Uh, Jared Isaacman, who is the commander of the mission and uh, bankrolled this whole thing, he actually donated $100 million to St. Jude's. So right now, we think they're probably sleeping, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, it was a long day leading up to this, but I don't know how they could actually sleep in that cabin because they're probably so excited. But we should be getting some more information and more images inside the capsule uh, as the day goes on. But we do know that, you know, this was six months in the making. Uh, for this crew. They've been training. They climbed Mount Rainier to bond. They did fighter jet flights. They also did zero G flights to prepare for the weightlessness environment that they are currently in. And we know that they are in a nominal orbit and their orbit, he says, pretty unique. This is uh, the furthest into space that SpaceX has ever gone. They're about 100 miles above the International Space Station right now. So humans haven't been this deep into space since the Apollo uh, era. And Part of the point of this whole mission is to, of course, open uh, the gates for more civilians to one day hopefully uh, be able to travel, but also they're doing research on board. They're studying how the human body acclimates to the space environment. And Haley Arsenault, she's a former cancer survivor. She was treated at St. Jude's. Uh, she'll be the medical officer on board, and they're doing all kinds of ultrasound tests and, and what have you, Issa, to, to study how the human body acclimates acclimates to the unique environment of space. Well, like you said, Rachel, I don't think uh, I would be sleeping. In fact, sleeping would be the last thing on my mind uh, for those three days. Rachel Crane, keep us posted. Thanks very much. Good to see you. Well, NASA sent a message. Congratulations to the SpaceX crew. Senator Bill Nelson is NASA's administrator and a former astronaut. Senator, great to have you with us. Give us a sense of what you said. What did that message say? Well, Lisa, it's, it's another uh, great day. Uh, it's another successful SpaceX launch. Uh, the more reliable that vehicle becomes, whether it's for an entirely uh, tourist event uh, or whether it is uh, a launch to the International Space Station, of which SpaceX has already done uh, three and they're getting uh, ready to do the fourth one at the end of October. Uh, all of that is indicating that the commercial world is here, it's successful, and NASA wants to encourage it. And we're all incredibly excited about it. At least I am, Senator, I can tell you that much. But as we heard from, from uh, our correspondent there, Rachel Crane, she said they're currently 100 miles above the International Space Station. I mean, and they're actually doing, they're doing actual work. Give us a sense of what that involves. Well, uh, they will have a number of experiments. Uh, I must say that they are in cramped quarters. <laughs> uh, just think if they were attached to the International Space Station, you have that volume of all those modules all attached to each other, uh, where you also have privacy of, uh, of a toilet and uh, uh, showers and uh, those things. 
they're all cramped together in that one uh, spacecraft, Dragon. So, but it's only for three days. And yeah. uh, remember, our Apollo astronauts were in a similar size uh, capsule, uh, four days out to the moon, uh, landing on the moon, uh, returning to the spacecraft and returning to Earth. Uh, it, it's cramped quarters. Yeah, but you make the sacrifices, I'm sure, Senator, for three days. You know, forget the showers and lying down, I think, for three days to have this experience. And I think many people will put their hands up. But look, it's like you said, it's cramped quarters. So they're spending, they won't be spending plenty of time together before the launch. How important is, is it for them to have had time together in such a closed environment? Whenever you take a high-risk operation and spaceflight is risky, uh, you want to have a, a close relationship with the people that you are sharing it with. Because should, uh, Lord forbid, any emergency occur, uh, they need to work together as a team. Uh, and that's why uh, in our astronauts, uh, we always uh, uh, assign a crew for some period of time all working together and they bond together as a crew. Let's talk uh, about the future of commercial travel. How far are we from this becoming a reality, Senator? I think it is a reality already. Uh, NASA buys services uh, from SpaceX and soon, hopefully, Boeing uh, to take crew to and from the International Space Station. Uh, we buy services from other commercial providers, uh, such as Northrop Grumman, to take cargo to and from the International Space Station. The space station is a joint international project. We have modules from other countries that are part of it. And as we venture out uh, to the moon, uh, we will likewise have an international consortium uh, in our revolving spacecraft about uh, the moon called Gateway. There will be significant commercial uh, landings on the moon. Uh, and these landings are going to occur starting in just a year and a half. A lot of scientific experiments, a lot of help and preparation for when our astronauts land on the moon. So the commercial reality is here with us today. Yeah, and what we have seen is, like you said, NASA working with private industry on these space projects. Wonderful to get your perspective. Thank you very much, NASA Administrator Senator Bill Nelson. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. And Thanks, still ahead... Sir. Taxing the rich to help the middle class. President Biden set to push for a more level economic playing field in a speech later today as the battle over trillions in a new stimulus heats up. We'll have that next. Now, global investors are monitoring the progress of a three and a half trillion dollar fiscal stimulus bill making its way through the U.S. Congress. The House is putting the finishing touches on the landmark legislation that would raise taxes on businesses and wealthy Americans. President Biden is said to urge 
passage of the historic plan today. Matt Egan uh, joins me now. He's been following the story. Matt, give us a sense of what we can hear from the president today uh, and whether this bill could potentially pass. Well, Issa, I think we're going to hear a sales pitch from the president of the United States today. He's got <laughs> to sell the public and lawmakers, especially lawmakers on the fence, about how exactly his plan would strengthen this recovery and make it fair. Now, the White House has said that President Biden is going to be talking about uh, rising costs and talking about how um, the middle class can, quote, finally catch a break. Now, Republicans have been arguing that this $3.5 trillion Build Back Better plan is going to cause runaway inflation. I think we're going to hear the exact opposite, though, from the president today. Um, the president needs to point to how these are long-term investments uh, that would actually put a lot of money towards um, trying to make childcare more affordable, um, boosting education and worker retraining. And when you think about the fact that we have a record number of job openings in the United States, all of those things could actually help labor supply, could ease some pressure on inflation. And that's on top of the trillion dollar or so bipartisan infrastructure plan that could also help um, ease some of these bottlenecks that we've seen emerge in the economy. I think the problem, though, is that I don't think the president has the votes for a $3.5 trillion package from Senator Joe Manchin, the uh, moderate Democrat from West Virginia. And he said he's not going to support uh, anything like $3.5 trillion. And yesterday, the White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, he spoke at the SALT conference that I was covering, and he conceded that some of these elements of this $3.5 trillion package are probably going to get scaled back in terms of how much they're spending and the duration. Issa, I think the question is whether or not it gets watered down so much that it ends up minimizing the impact on the economy. Where do markets stand on this? Because, of course, the spending bill kind of spreads the spending over 10 years. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think that uh, we've seen much evidence that markets are worried about, um, you know, the inflationary impact yeah. here, because to your point, these are long term investments. I mean, this is very different from the American Rescue Plan uh, that passed uh, early this year. There's no stimulus checks here. There's no uh, forgivable loans for small businesses. There's no bailouts of airlines. Um, these are long term investments. Um, but what markets are most concerned about is how do you pay for it now? The White House and, and congressional Democrats, they want to raise revenue by lifting taxes. Now, if the corporate tax rate goes up, that, of course, is going to hurt uh, corporate earnings. And Goldman Sachs uh, has said that, you know, it's not really clear that markets mm. are uh, in yet. Uh, I talked to David Rubenstein, the, uh, the private equity billionaire this week, and he said he does think corporate taxes are going to go up. The question, Issa, is how much higher? Matt Egan there for us. Thanks very much, Matt. And that's it for the show. Thanks for watching Connect the World is next with Max Foster. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 
and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.